Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, or give me death by Donald E. Westlake. This was first published in Universe Science Fiction, November 1954. Uh, I have a couple other little pieces of trivia about this. Um, uh, This is Donald Westlake's first sale, um, professional sale. Um, And uh, in an interview, he he said um, he got paid $20 for it. (laughs) He also said that the magazine immediately went out of business right thereafter. It's not quite true. There was two more issues before it went out of business. But Donald Donald Westlake has a massive and glorious career um, spanning from 1954 to 2008. Um, In fact, there are still books being published uh, that have never come out before or ones that have been lost and such um, today because he was a writing machine and he was incredibly talented. So uh, this story is not my favorite. Um, on the other hand, you can see he's got some real ideas going on, and uh, I believe he was 21 when this story came out. Yeah, that's how I did the subtraction, too. That's quite astonishing. Um, I must say, um, the story begins uh, for the first half column as if you are reading the work of a very, very young writer, mm-hmm. uh, someone who's not at all sophisticated, but there is a line that we'll talk about later, I hope, uh, that suddenly pops out and you think, whoa, this is one clever guy. Mm-hmm. And then the story just goes. Indeed. And uh, it's short enough that I think uh, you could read it for us and... Uh and then we'd have time to talk about it afterward. I look forward to it. Thanks, Jesse. Or Give Me Death by Donald E. Westlake. I'm a very busy man, said the editor. I know, said his visitor. I won't take long. You can't, said the editor. I have too much to do. Sit down. Thank you, said the visitor, sitting down. Now, said the editor, what is it? First, said the visitor, I'd better tell you who I am. Dr. Philip Lambert, medical doctor, and I've been to three psychiatrists. They all said I was sane and that I haven't been having hallucinations. Okay, said the editor, what haven't you been imagining? (laughs) He looked at his watch. Lambert leaned forward. Patrick Henry is dead. The editor stared at him. Finally, this is your idea of a joke? Lambert shook his head. No, he died in my house at 8-7 last night. The editor waved his hand between Lambert and himself. Palm out, wait a minute, he said. The only Patrick Henry I know lived during the revolution. Lambert nodded. That's the one. The editor stood up. Three psychiatrists said you weren't nuts. That's right. They were nuts. They talked to Patrick. The editor stood behind his desk, stared at Lambert, and then walked over to the door, hung a homemade sign saying, go away, on it, closed it, and returned to his desk. He sat down. Okay, he said. Tell me. I believe anything. Lambert smiled thinly. He came to me about four months ago. Of course, I didn't know then who he was. To me, he was just a bent old man, very thickly lined of face, who came to me for relief from a chronic headache. 
I couldn't find any superficial reason for the headache, so I gave him a thorough examination. What I found was astonishing, impossible. A bit of metal, probably a bullet, embedded in his brain. A faint scar caused by a deep wound years before on his heart. Other things. He should have been dead a dozen times. Besides, he was a lot older than anyone I have ever examined before. He should have been long since dead of old age, if nothing else. After I'd examined him, I sat and looked at him for a while, trying to make out some sense of it. Things that would kill any human being, things that would kill any human being hadn't killed him. Why? After a while, I asked him, when were you shot? He looked at me oddly. Why? It should have killed you. 1823. He said it just like that. It was a minute before I caught it. 1823? How old are you, I asked him. 217, he said. I got to my feet, hacked away, backed away from him. What are you? What do you want from me? The word to use is who, not what, he said calmly. I'm Patrick Henry, and I want you to do something about this headache. Patrick Henry's dead, I said. He shrugged. They buried him in 1799. Do you mean you're a spirit? Hell no, he said. I'm as alive as you are, probably more. I sat down again, feeling weak. I don't get it. How can you be Patrick Henry? How can you be alive at all, whoever you are? I'll tell you, said Patrick. Remember that speech I made when I said, give me liberty or give me death? I nodded. Somebody in the hereafter must have been feeling prankish. That's the only way I can figure it out. They decided I wanted one or the other, that I was giving them the choice. They gave me liberty. You mean they refused to give you death? Right. By golly, I said, that's wonderful. Immortality. Bah, he snorted. When a man's outlived his time, he should stop living and quit cluttering up the world. Living gets to be a bore after a while. Why, when I first realized I couldn't die, I was overjoyed. I soon got sick of it, though, so I tried to give the humorist a hint. I got myself buried. For a year and a half, I lay six feet under with no air and no food, but I didn't die. I got so hungry, I ate my clothes and the lining of the coffin, but I didn't die. How did you ever manage to get out, I asked him. Some damn fool young medical student dug me up in the, to experiment on. Ha! He almost needed a coffin himself when I sat up and said, hello. I can imagine, I said. And it was somehow funny. I could imagine the scene. Then I thought of something else. How is it nobody knows about you, I asked him. A few people do, he said. But if I went before a whole crowd, they think I was a vaudeville act or a television mimic. And if I wrote to a magazine or a newspaper, they'd put it in their letter column as the gag of the month. A couple of the people who knew me tried, but they either wound up in a padded cell or were laughed out of town. Besides, who cares about Patrick Henry anymore? You could get a government pension, I said. Live in a vine-covered cottage outside Richmond and write delicate little stories about the revolution. Young man, said Patrick, rising to his feet and glowering with the old oratorical fire in his eye. Do you realize that if you spell the revolution with a small r, you have something that one of your politicians just recently said always leads to tyranny? Do you realize that I and all the others that with me were a bunch of subversives? 
men who refuse to do their duty as citizens and pay taxes for the mutual security and national defense of the British Empire, who stored up loads of munitions in hiding places, who plotted to overthrow the government? More than that, they did overthrow the government. Damn it, man. Those aren't your forebears. I think all those men were sterile. And only the Tories, the loyal, conforming Tories, had any children. Bunch of mealy-mouthed welfare statists. Bah! I was a little taken aback by Patrick's sudden blast, but I said, you're confused. It's the welfare statists who are trying to overthrow the government. What? He actually got purple in the face. Social security, public power, unemployment, insurance, free college education, all the rest of it. The stupid junk they've been cramming down the Tories' gullible gullets. And you try to tell me it's the welfare status who are trying to overthrow the government? Hell, man, they are the government. What's wrong with social security and free college education, I asked. They're progressive. Progressive? If I told you suicide was progressive, you'd run out and kill yourself. There's nothing wrong with government insurance, but there's everything wrong with compulsory government insurance. And giving everybody college educations, what are most of them going to do with all that pretty knowledge? All they're going to do is be unhappy all their lives because they were prepared for a better job than the one they got. There aren't enough jobs needing a college education for all these young boobs. Somebody's going to have to dig the coal and make the undershirts. He clutched his stomach in fond reminiscence. Oh, the stomach ache I got when Social Security went through. I couldn't eat anything but liquid for three weeks. I don't get it, I said. What did Social Security have to do with your stomach ache? Every time the United States loses some of its liberty, I get closer to death. They even off in me all the time. My health and the nation's freedom. The Civil War conscription gave me a heart murmur. The First World War conscription gave me high blood pressure. This one gave me coronary thrombosis. Excise taxes laid me low for two months. Of course, there have been times when I was in worse shape than I'm in right now. When the Alien and Sedition Act was passed, I went stone deaf, blind in the right eye, and paralyzed, paralyzed from the waist down. During Prohibition, it was my right arm that was paralyzed. Couldn't bend my elbow to save myself. <laughs> Wait a minute, I said. Are you doing anything special? Got any important engagements? Anything like that? He shook his head. No. Why? How would you like to live at my house? I have plenty of room and all the privacy you want. I'd like to examine you some more. He thought for a while. All right, he said at last. As long as it's examine not investigate. I've had a beautiful set of ulcers since that word took on its new meaning. By the way, I said, your headache, how long have you had it? About three weeks, he said. You said your ills come from lost liberties. What liberty did we lose three weeks ago? I thought for a minute around the first of the year, end of 54, beginning of 55. What liberty did we lose then? He shrugged his shoulders. I don't know, he said. Sometimes I get the ache before the thing becomes public. Whatever it is, we'll know about it soon enough. And whatever it is, the Tories all over the country will welcome it with open arms, as long as somebody tells them it's progressive. Mm. Ah, don't be bitter, I told him. You'd be murder in a political discussion. I can back up my statements with diseases, he said. <laughs> 
I'll close the office now, I said, and take you around to my house. I closed the office and brought him home. There was a long pause. Then the editor said, is that all? Just about, said Lambert. I examined him some more, did what I could for the headache. He claimed it was getting worse. He first came to me three months ago. After a week, I went to see a psychiatrist. He suggested I should go somewhere for a nice long rest, so I brought him home to talk to Patrick. He went home dazed, but convinced that I was sane, and Patrick was alive and well. Patrick! I got written... State, I got a written statement from him and from two other psychiatrists just in case I ever wanted to tell anyone about this without Patrick around for proof. Lambert reached into his breast pocket, withdrew a flat envelope. Here they are, he said. The editor looked at the notes. He knew the names signed to the bottom of them. All three said that Dr. Philip Lambert was sane, that Patrick Henry lived, and that Lambert's account of him was correct. Okay, said the editor, dropping the notes on his desk. Say, I believe you. So what? Do you want some free publicity for Patrick or what? Lambert shook his head. I told you Patrick died last night at 8-7. Then what do you want, asked the editor. Just an obituary notice? No, 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 said Lambert impatiently. Didn't I tell you that Patrick had received liberty instead of death? That until all liberty was gone from the United States... He could not die. What are you trying to say, asked the editor, that at 8-7 last night, we lost the last of our liberties. I don't know what it was, what happened, anything about it. All I know is that this is no longer a free nation. Now that's enough, said the editor. There I can check you up. I run a paper here, and I put in it anything I want to put in it. I say whatever I feel like saying. If I couldn't, then this wouldn't be a free country. But I can. So your Patrick Henry story is a lot of... The door opened, and two men walked in. The end. (laughs) Indeed, of the country. So... It's kind of a joke story, uh, kind of a very sad joke story. Um, I, I think there's a couple of terms, maybe, and a little historical information we should probably throw down, because I, though familiar with Benjamin Franklin and, uh, let's see, who else? Jefferson, a few other guys of, you know, I'm from Canada, so we didn't study this in school. I, I didn't get who Patrick Henry was. The first time I ever heard about him was in a famous essay by uh, Robert A. Heinlein called Who Are the Heirs of Patrick Henry, which in which he strangely invokes uh, this this figure to defend above-ground nuclear testing. I don't know hmm. what, uh, what, what Westlake would have made of that. I think... Patrick Henry, what he would have made of his name being invoked to defend above-ground nuclear testing. But I understand why Heinlein uh, is using it. Um, I think last time we talked about this guy, um, Patrick Henry, you're telling me he was a libertarian. Um, That word never comes up in here. Liberty certainly does. But Tory is the word he uses again and again. Um, That is, Patrick Henry does, to describe the modern people of America. Um, In Canada, we have a political party called the Tories. They are uh, related to these kinds of Tories. And in fact, the Tories in the American Revolution who 
uh, didn't stay in the United States, went to Canada because they were in favor of keeping things as they were. Uh, conservatism is what is Toryism, basically. So West uh, Westlake is relying on the sort of a native knowledge of Patrick Henry. Maybe it was greater at the time uh, when this story came out. But uh, do you have uh, sort of a sketch of who this dude is in real life, or was was in real life when he actually so probably died in 1799, as this story denies? Seventeen, uh, yes. Uh, he did die in 1799 at the age of 63. Um, he was important at a period when there were a lot of people important from the standpoint mm-hmm. of uh, a youngster going to public school in the United States in the 1950s. Um, I was eight when this thing was published. Um, it may be that because I went to school in the north rather than the south, I learned less about Patrick Henry than other kids might have. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, um, I knew that, you know, give me liberty or give me death. Um, mm-hmm. He was a rousing uh, proponent of the revolution on exactly the grounds that are listed here. But when I first read this story as an adult and saw that line about having a living on a government pun- pension outside of Richmond, mm-hmm. I wondered why. And only then did I find out that, he, in fact, he had been the first as well as the sixth governor of the state of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's an important person as a precursor to states' rights. Um, he put, he's alongside Jefferson in that regard. Mm-hmm. And uh, while Jefferson is much lauded in the education I got in New York, um, in those days— we didn't think too much about Jeff. We knew he was a slaveholder, but we didn't think too much about it. Mm-hmm. Patrick Henry, I imagine, was a slaveholder. No one ever said a word to me about that. I did learn that states' rights was an argument behind uh, slaveholders saying that they needed to secede. And so that individual liberty, I want my liberty to do what I want. Indeed, I think that both Jefferson and Patrick Henry were sort of libertarian, as I think that Robert Heinlein was much more of a libertarian. In fact, I can tell you that the person who puts on Freedom Fest, which is an annual convention of libertarians right, from all over this uh, North America, a very high-level convention that has some interesting entertainment, after having listened to some of my recorded lectures about Robert Heinlein, contacted me and asked me if I would come and speak at Freedom Fest. Um, so he, even non-SF people recognize Heinlein as um, libertarian. Mm-hmm. And, and his quoting of Patrick Henry, I think, is in accord with that. I think that's what's going on here, too. Because you notice what the editor says as a sign that liberty exists in the land. Mm-hmm. Not that other people have liberty, I can write whatever I want. I can publish whatever I want. And then in come two people, and I think we are to understand that these are unacknowledged government agents. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, the Tories, those who don't want things to change, have won. Um, I, I think this is in keeping with what we know about Patrick Henry, but not what was taught in 1954. Mm-hmm. Right. This is this is what today 
we would understand is a potential interpretation of his life and the significance of a free press and so on. In that regard, I've got to say, you were quite right in introducing this story, Jesse. This thing is full of ideas mm-hmm. and not just the common ideas of 1954. This is a really forward-looking piece of writing from a political and philosophical viewpoint. Mm-hmm. It's funny. Um Westlake is not mostly known as a science fiction writer. He he eventually wrote an essay uh, explaining why he was leaving science fiction. And basically it was saying he wasn't getting paid and that his writing was good enough that he should be getting paid a lot more than the piddly little wages that he was earning from selling to science fiction magazines. Um, he really only has one science fiction novel published and... Uh, apparently it cost him money to actually get it published. Um, that's called Anarchaos, and it's a very good story, uh, good novel. It's about a planet where there are no laws. <laughs> um, uh-huh. And uh, basically it's an exploitation story. Um, it's funny, though, because his ideas of science fiction, the ones that did get published, um, they're not on the normal themes of science fiction. It's not usually about planetary aliens or I don't know what the normal themes of science fiction are. He doesn't do time travel, right? Uh, one of his stories, it's a very strange story. Is um, I'm sorry. This is one-way time travel, isn't it? Uh, it is. You're right. This is a kind... Uh, it, it, it's also a good question, is this a science fiction story? Because obviously, um, I, I think it's an allegory. But uh, it's even mentioned in here. His, one of his, his few extant science fiction stories is a story called The Risk Profession, which is about insurance. <laughs> mm-hmm. why, why is insurance a topic for science fiction? Well, if you think about it, it's about predicting the future. And this is actually explicitly called out in this story. There's nothing wrong with government insurance, but there's everything wrong with compulsory government insurance. And insurance is, in fact, what governments are in a certain sense. You know, it ensures that your house doesn't get robbed by having the police. It ensures that your borders don't get uh, violated by having an army. It ensures that the roads get paved. It ensures that your children get educated. Insurance and governments are related. And here's the problem. You've got a guy, Patrick Henry, who believes in liberty... But he also believes in government at least a little bit because he was a governor. And yet there's a tension here. So what's cool to me is looking through it and seeing like, oh, Westlake is actually using Patrick Henry as a metaphor for uh, the United States. Patrick Henry is the United States in a certain sense, or at least one aspect of it, liberty. And I note that the doctor, our uh, our physician here, invi- Philip Lambert, invites Liberty to come stay with him <laughs> um, yes. in his house, which is kind of strange. Um, and Liberty does come to his house, and then Liberty dies. And of all the wounds and, and <laughs> the one when Prohibition came in, uh, paralyzed his elbow, preventing him from bending it, right? A very good joke. Um of all the wounds that Patrick Henry took, um, most of them don't get dates, but the one that I noted uh, was 1823, 
He says, Mm -hmm. he looked at me oddly. Why, it should have killed you. 1823. He said it just like that, and it was a minute before I caught it. 1823? How old are you? I asked. 217, he said. So he was shot in 1823. He was shot in the brain. And I was like, 1823? What? Why is that a date that I should care about? How, how if this well, guy is the United States, why is this important? Well, so I looked that's, it up. That is one that was taught to me as a kid. <laughs> and so it go was, ahead. You say it. It was the Monroe Doctrine, right? Which exactly. Is, which is uh, the first thing that stood out when I looked it up. And it is a very important part of the United States modern history. It says, basically, that all of the West, the Western Hemisphere, North and South America, are the domain of the United States. That is, this is our business. We can do what we will here. And you Europeans, you Asians, you stay out of this place. Actually, that's not quite true. I, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a, a committed uh, or, uh, apologist for the United States. The, the Monroe Doctrine doesn't say that this is America's domain. It says that anybody from outside the Western Hemisphere can't come in. <laughs> Which is not the same as saying that we have the right, we Americans, have the right to take over other countries. In fact, that may be how one views the subsequent history. But the Monroe Doctrine didn't say that, uh, unlike, for example, the Japanese Coke prosperity sphere Mm -hmm. that they spoke about in the 1930s and tried to uh, create in the 1940s, the United States wasn't explicitly talking about a co-prosperity sphere. It was just saying, you guys keep out. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it, but the important part is who's going to enforce that, right? Exactly. And, of course, uh, this idea of liberty being extended for oneself or on others, right? It's a matter of interpretation. So if a European power comes into South America and starts doing its business down there, uh, they might think this is a good thing or they might think this is a terrible thing but is it the united states's business monroe doctrine says it is because Absolutely. this is our domain in the certain not the sense that it is our country but it is our sphere of influence um and yeah the trade agreements and all that stuff come after but that extending of the of the will beyond the borders of the country is is the first death or the, the, the first real wound that hurts him, a shot to the brain that should have killed him. So Westlake is being very subtle, and this is a great thing about his writing. He's, he's very subtle, but he's making very valid, oh, I don't know if they're valid points, but they're important points. He has strong opinions points. here, but it's very they diplomatically are. done. So I like to look at the context of when this story is published. It was first published in 1954, in November. And there's a line here that says uh, a little bit about this. It says, um, by the way, I said, your headache, how long have you had it? About three weeks, he said. You said your ills come from lost liberties. What liberty did we lose three weeks ago? I thought for a minute. Around the first of the year, end of 54, beginning of 55. So this is when the story is being published, right? Mm-hmm. November, end of mm-hmm. 54. What liberty did we lose? He shrugged his shoulders. I don't know. 
So this story hits home for the reader as they're reading it. We're about to lose our liberties. We don't know what they are yet. But there were certainly many things mentioned in the war, including, for example, uh, in this story, it says, um, the First World War, uh, the First World War conscription, not the war itself, gave me high blood pressure. This one gave me coronary thrombosis. He's talking about the Korean War. Right. Excise taxes laid me low for two months. So anything that impinges his liberty damages him. And I think this story is, in in its period, is just coming out of and inspired by the investigations. He says, I'll come over to your house, um, but only for you to examine me, not to investigate me. And I was like, oh, what's that? And I think I know what that is, too. Do you have a guess? Of course, Joe McCarthy. That's what I thought. Although it's interesting, I looked this up in the Oxford English Dictionary, the use of the word investigate to mean an inquiry into the character of an individual Mm -hmm. as opposed to just exploring how things work. Mm -hmm. That use of the word actually came in in the late 18th century. So when Patrick Henry says this modern use of the word... (laughs) He may well have been talking about his time as well as ours. (laughs) I'd like to make another small, I think, political uh, literary connection. It was fascinating that you said that among the few SF works that we get from Westlake, there's one in which insurance is crucial. Mm -hmm. There's a 1939 story by Heinlein called Lifeline. I was thinking of that very one. Exactly. And and as I say, it's his first two, I think. Is that correct? Um, it's very early. It is very early. I'll look that I up. Don't, keep I don't know if it's first. But in, in, in Lifeline, someone invents a machine that can take a piece of your, your body or whatever, um, clippings from your nails, some, and it can predict your exact date of death. Uh, amazing. Um, and he gets killed. And it turns out that who has killed him? The insurance industry. <laughs> Because if everybody knows exactly when they're going to die, they don't need to have any insurance against unexpected death. Um, This is perfect in terms of Heinlein's own libertarianism. Mm -hmm. The more you have organizations, the less individual liberty. We need to have power for ourselves, not for those around us. If need be, they will kill to to preserve it. And that seems to be what we find here. and 15 years later in Donald Westlake. Of course, as a 21-year-old, he'd probably already been reading Heinlein. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was his first published story, published in 1939, and it's also the first in the Future History series, which is pretty much all of his his science fiction. Well, most of his science fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it seems to me that... Um, this is a very well-written story. Uh, the line that I thought things turned on, mm-hmm. uh, which suddenly, I mean, he says, I'm a busy man. I sat down. He said, I sit down. I sat down. I mean, it's, it's like info dump. It's like someone who doesn't know how to write. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then he says, um, they all said I was insane, that I was sane, that I haven't been having hallucinations. Okay, said the editor. What <laughs> haven't you been imagining? Right. That is so clever. 
And obviously the editor didn't think it up. Westlake thought it up. Mm-hmm. The, the, the way he has of looking at things in, in freshly mm-hmm. and coming up with a new idea about it, that runs throughout this story, which is why when we examine it and unfold it in the history of science fiction and in the career of Donald Westlake and in the development of American politics, there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.